So I have a couple of friends who are really good magicians, right? One of them, as a matter of fact, came and did a, a program last year for our Ageless Wonders and some of the kids from elementary school. I mean, they were, they were great. When I was a kid, though, I was taught that magicians were evil or of the devil. And I guess, for, I guess that might be true for some, I don't know. But my friends who are magicians, I mean, they're clear that they don't make anything appear or disappear. In fact, what they do is they, just, they call it right out of sleight of hand. Frankly, that's the most effective kind of magic, in my opinion. It's what I tried to do. I mean, they can have you look right at the card or the toy or whatever, and you miss how the trick is done. I mean, it's pretty amazing how our eyes can deceive us. I mean, they take advantage of the age-old prophet. That famous prophet, Don Henley, from the Eagles, that he put it, you can't hide your lying eyes. I mean, our eyes tell us what appears to be happening is actually happening, or, or more often, what, what we can't see isn't possible. I mean, our eyes rule it out. It's where we get the phrase, seeing is believing. I mean, it's true. What we see, we tend to believe, but oftentimes, what we see is actually a lie. That's what we're going to see going on in our text today. But first, I want to help you avoid it. Avoid it happening to you. I want to help you because there's a lot going on in this text that we're going to look at today. And if we're not careful, we'll get caught up in all the details and we'll miss the point that I believe God is trying to show us. As they say, we'll miss the forest for the trees. So let's start with the text. All right, It's a short passage. We're going to work our way through it and come back and look at the main point. And then I'll tell you right up front what the main point is. Grace doesn't have to, but grace does. Grace doesn't have to, but it does. So, join me. Genesis 6.1. When human beings in, began to increase in the number on the earth, and daughters were born to them. Now, if you remember chapter 5, it told us that the generations to follow Adam. And now here in chapter 6, we see how that's happening. Now, you, you may remember the ancestors following Cain. The firstborn of Adam and Eve were rebellious as Cain. But the, with the ancestors of Seth, people began to call upon the name of God. And, and then, verse 2, it tells us, it tells us more. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. They married any of them they chose. I mean, you hear that? I mean, who's the writer talking about here? I mean, this is the first distraction that in the text that will preoccupy us from the point of missing the point. What do I mean? What do I mean about this distraction, number one? Who were the sons of God and the daughters of men? Who were they? I mean, there are three camps, as you want to call them, three ways of understanding these words that people generally, theologians, buy into. The first one, the sons of God, refer to angels. Now, the idea is that the angels came to earth, took on the form of men, and married women. Now, in other places, angels are referred to as sons of God. That's true. But I still have a couple of problems with this view. I mean, you probably guessed that because I, I talked about this one first, right? But my main problem is, is that Jesus, in discussing angels, said that they were neither given nor received in marriage. He talked about that in the New Testament. Angels are spirit beings without form and substance. Yes, there are images that God has given to represent angels, but, but they're spirits. How can a spirit marry a woman? It can't. So I see this as an over-spiritualizing of a phrase in this instance. Besides, later we'll see that the humans were punished for this. Why not the angels? Since they seem to be the ones taking wives as they chose. The second explanation is that, is that there are, these, are, these are sons of God or actually sons of rulers. We saw Cain's ancestors begin to build cities and kingdoms. So, so there's politically powerful people all over the world, and they're starting to take daughters of common folk because of their beauty. I'm sure this happened. 
but I don't think it fully addresses what all is going on here. Besides, it was Cain's family who were rebellious ones. Remember Enoch in the line of Seth, who was the one who walked with God. So the third explanation is that the sons of God were the sons of Seth, the family of those who called out to God. And they are taking as wives the daughters of Cain, the daughters of men. I believe this absolutely fits with what's going on in the story, as we're going to see. So, so put that in your notes. Sons of God equals Seth. Sons of daughter, or daughters of men equals of Cain. I'll get back to this in a moment. But let's continue through the text, okay, in, in verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. I'm going to come back to this passage because it's important. But right now, let's, let's get to distraction number two, which is, what's with the 120 years? I mean, a lot of people get caught up in this, that, that we can't live beyond 120 years. Many believe that, that, that God set a limit to our lifespan. But I, I believe that for a long time. But as we read on in, in the story here, we'll see that, that people actually live much longer than that for a long time. So what did God mean? Catch this. God is saying, I believe, in 120 years, that's three generations, He was going to judge the people of the world. He was giving them a time limit of 120 years. Why? That's a good question. The best answer is because God said so. I mean, we'll see in just a moment. Sin was rampant, and God had set an expiration date on it. Now, let's keep going. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. This is distraction number three. Who are the Nephilim? I mean, it seems like a tribe of people, or maybe a description of people who were alive at the same time as, as these sons and daughters were having children, right? The evil of the Nephilim was also clear as they were men of renown. That is, men with a name. Or, as we might say it today, men living to make a name for themselves. I mean, we know people like that, don't we? I mean, people living to make a name for themselves? Of course we do. And to that, the writer goes on in verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw the great wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them all. Wow. That's a, that's a word of judgment. These distractions have the potential to keep you from seeing what's really happening in the text. Just like my silly card trick, right? We get caught up looking at what doesn't really matter. So what really matters here? What's really going on? That's the question that I want to help us dig into today. Remember, chapter 1 told us about God, His nature, His character. Chapter 2 told us about how we were related to God and who we were created to be in relationship with Him. Chapter 3 told us how that relationship was broken, eating the forbidden fruit, remember? Chapter 4 and 5 showed us how that original sin began to infect the whole world. And now in chapter 6, we see the explosion of our fascination with sin revealed in what people think of others, what they think of God. 
We see first that I have an amazing potential to make life all about me. To take what God has made and use it for evil. I mean, God created women to be partners in marriage. But now, in the story, it was all about desire. Women were being taken and used for sexual, selfish purposes. I mean, if you read in Matthew 24, you'll read all about Jesus describing what was going on here in Genesis. In the, before the flood, the world was filled with sexual perversion, violence, corruption. And the men of God were choosing to turn their heads, to turn from God, to turn from doing the right thing, no longer seeking the Lord as Enoch did, taking what looked good for their own use, becoming what Paul described in 2 Corinthians 6 as being unequally yoked, marrying those who were not believers. But they weren't concerned with the, with the spiritual realities. The women were attractive, they wanted them, and so they took them. They're committing the same sin their grandparents had, who liked the fruit, and so they ate it. This selfishness, this wickedness, had, had a spiritual reality to it. Sort of like a card trick. There was more going on that we could see than what we could see. And in Genesis, the sin created by our making ourselves out to be the point of the story, I mean, that grieves the heart of God. And not only grieves His heart, but it demands His judgment. That's the reality. Sin grieves the heart of God and demands His judgment. I mean, I've, I've heard it said that, that God wished He hadn't created man. I don't think that that's the sort of regret that's going on here. I, I, I th think of it as if your children rejected your love. You show your love by providing for them, for blessing them. And they take your blessings and they begin to use them as they deem appropriate. Not as you desire. In fact, they don't even regard you anymore. But rather, they, they see your intent as, as to be avoided rather than even considered. Let alone obey. How do you feel? You feel regret. Deeply saddened. You're grieved. But we would more, like, more than likely allow them to go on with their lives, waiting for them to return. Why is that? Well, I believe the reason why we let things go on is the same reason magic tricks work. I mean, think about it. It's the same reason we're always tempted to believe what we should know is a lie. A good employee. Good employee. Who always has an excuse for being late. The respectful child who consistently points blame at his friends. The friend who says they don't really have a problem drinking or driving, but you're just imagining things. I mean, I did some reading this week, and, and one researcher I read explained why we believe lies, why so quickly believe lies. Explained it this way, and it gave me a lot of clarity. We want to believe what we see because to question it is a form of conflict, and we always look to avoid conflict. I mean, think about that. If we see something that isn't right, then we might have to do something about it. It's easier just to accept it, to, to go along with the scam. That way, everybody seems happy anyway, at least for now. But God can't play this game. God doesn't have the luxury of avoiding conflict in relationships, in our relationships with Him. It's holy and just. He can't avoid who He is and His responsibility. So God's grace was given a deadline. Genesis 6, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And within the animals, birds, creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I even made them. Yeah. 
Time's up, God says. Second Peter also said, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if He didn't spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, then, then how is He going to protect anybody else? Especially, it goes on in verse 10, especially those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority boldly and arrogantly. God judges sin, plain and simple. And we are all guilty. Every single one of us. As I said last week, Jesus, Jesus said, no one is good, not even one. We all have a sin problem. A problem that demands judgment. And we can't fix it. I mean, sure, we might be able to be good for the moment, but, but what about the sins of our past? I mean, we have no way to make up for the things of the past. And there's nothing I can do to change my heart. When it comes to sin, simply, we're helpless. We're helpless, but we're not hopeless. You see, because God, He wants to redeem the world. We are right at the cliff, and God has given us 120 years, and it's about a... And look... At the horizon? What is it? What is that? It looks like a person who's walking towards us. I mean, it's hard to tell, but, but is that, it looks like, well, well, it sure is. I never would have guessed it. Look at who appears just in time in verse 8. Noah. Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah. Noah wasn't the key. Remember, all mankind was evil. Here's a test for you. Math-minded people, you'll get this. When we say all, do we mean 50%? 99.9%? No. When Scripture says all, that every heart was evil, all means 100%. And yet Noah found favor. How did that happen? Did God miscount? No. Noah found favor with God. That word favor is the Hebrew word for grace. Unmerited favor of God. It's God deciding that He will save. He will bless. He will provide a way. It's not dependent on Noah. It's because God willed it. Noah had found what we Methodists love to talk about. Grace. Grace doesn't have to, but grace does. God's grace was extended to him, and Moses responded. Moses found it. He'd been there all along. In the beauty of creation, the wonder of the heavens, the depth of the waters, it had been there for everyone and anyone to see. Generations had begun to seek it. Enoch had found it, and now Noah had discovered it as well. He had a choice. He could receive it and walk with the Lord, or he could deny it and obey the desires of the world and bring more grief to God. Moses didn't know his choice was so big. If he had, who knows if he'd been able to, what he'd been able to do. We're going to talk more about Noah next week, but today I want us to recognize that Noah chose freely to walk with the Lord, not knowing what was going to happen. Not so he would become famous. Or that he'd be the savior of humanity. No, he walked to the Lord because he had found grace. That was all it took. That's still all it takes. Grace saves people. and It changes people's lives. You want your spouse to be saved? What they need to find is God's grace. You want your child or your grandchild to, to change their lives? What they need to find is God's grace. You want your church to be revived? It needs to find God's grace. God's grace changes hearts. You can't do it, but grace does.
How do you find that grace? It starts. It's all around you. It's an invitation. Grace is an invitation to turn your life over to God. To, to, to give yourself to Him. Pray a prayer of surrender. Just offering your life to God. Let Him have control. Let Him become the Lord of your life. Trusting that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is done. That He, that he was the Son of God who came to earth to live and to die. His life for yours. His death would cover yours. His blood would be, would be yours. Believing what, he, what Jesus claimed to be accomplishing on the cross. Believing that God gives us credit. God credits us for what Jesus did. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that you've fallen short? That you need help? That you don't have to live hopeless? That God has given us a way out? His Son Jesus to come and live and die for us. And to live again. To prove that He conquered death. If that's you, if you, want to, if you want to invite Christ into your life, if you want to live for God, I invite you to pray with me. Lord, thank you for your Son Jesus who makes this life possible. God, we know we've fallen short. We know we've, we've chosen the things that you created for good. We've chosen them selfishly to make them be all about us. God, we ask use us to speak to us, God, to, to forgive us. Forgive us of our selfishness, our pride. Forgive us of our sin. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for wiping us clean, for giving us a clean slate. God, we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for your grace, God, and we ask you, Lord, that your grace would be extended to fill our lives so that we might live for you in this life and in the life to come. Use us, God, for your glory to make a difference here in the world for your kingdom. We love you, Lord. We praise you for all you're doing. Thank you, Father, for saving our lives. Use us, Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, I invite you just to type right there in the chat, yes, yes. Type in the comments, yes, that today is a day that you changed over. Today, you responded to the grace that's been all around you all the time. God bless you. Now, if you would, join me in our benediction. Benediction that we use week in and week out here as we, uh, we close our worship together. Life is much more than an accident. Wherever I go, I believe God needs me. Wherever I am, I trust that God has put me there. That He has a purpose for me being there. Christ, alive in me, wants to do something through me. No matter where I am, I believe this. And I go in His grace and His love and His power. Amen. God bless you all. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you soon. All right.